Good morning and greetings in Christ's name this morning. Turn in your Bibles to John 11. You may recall how that I had been somewhat working through the book of John at a point in time, and I took a bit of a sabbatical from that the last while, and um, for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is um, I came to John 11, and I have to admit I kind of stalled. Um, I read the I read the account. It's a long chapter actually. Reread it. Somehow or the other, the inspiration just wouldn't come. It's one of those things you think, well, what's here? Uh, it's a nice story. Actually, a very nice story. Very good story. But what can we learn? Anyway, I revi- revisited this chapter, and, and I'm going to share a few thoughts from this chapter that um, I see. You may see others, but I'm going to share what I have this morning. And uh, hopefully we can... Uh, um, it is the inspired Word of God. I did remember that part, and so there has to be... See, it's here for a reason. As I say, it's a long chapter. I don't intend to read the whole chapter, but I do intend to read the, um, or at least focus on the first 46 verses, which is the account of Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead. Very familiar. Um, So I'll probably just read a few verses and then uh, make some comments and work our way through this and then have a few lessons we can maybe learn at the end. So let's get started here. John 11.1, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So let's stop there a second and just consider what these first three verses tell us. Um, number one, we don't know much about Lazarus. Outside of about five verses in this chapter and the next, this is the extent of what we know about Lazarus. We don't know of any conversations that Jesus held with this man. Um, we don't even know what he was sick with. You know, he was sick, but we don't know what with. And we do know that he was loved by Jesus, but we don't know why. Uh, what was the connection? What, um, what was about Laz- the dynamics between the Lazarus and Jesus that... Um, it was obvious that there was a love here. We also have an unidentified messenger who came to Jesus with this message that Lazarus is after all sick. But he didn't say Lazarus is sick. He said the one whom you love is sick. Very unique message when you think of it. No no appeal for healing. Um, No request to come to the house necessarily. Just a simple statement. The person you love, Jesus, is sick. Maybe there was an expectation that because Jesus loved this man, that Jesus would drop everything and go to Lazarus' house. We don't know that. But um, that's not not, uh, necessarily presumptuous to think that. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is indeed touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So I think the fact that Lazarus was sick did touch Jesus, and we'll see that later on. Let's go to verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still. 
in the same place where he was. So let's talk about that just a second. So I don't know what the inquirer thought whenever he heard Jesus' answer, but the answer was the sickness is not into death. I think this planted some hope in this, in this um, message bearer that, um, okay, it's not so bad after all. The man is not going to die. I think that's probably the way it, it, it resonated. And perhaps that's the message that the sisters got. I would have to imagine that probably was the message. But the response was indeed curious. It says he stayed two more days. And the curious part is that it seems for its un no unknown reason. Um, what did he do those two days? It doesn't say he was busy ministering to other people. He probably was, likely was, but it, it, just, it just seems like he just stayed there two days. It seems like that's the point the Word of God wants to bring out, that that was fine, he stayed there. You know, I think probably the messenger was a bit disappointed. This is my imagination, but I think he probably was. Um, we tend to be people, and I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that the that this the people of that day aren't weren't a lot different than the people that we are today, maybe a bit culturally, but I think inside there was some semblance of sameness. And we tend to want things done now, especially if there's a sickness, especially if there's a real problem. Uh, Jesus, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble now. Could you please heal me now? Could you take care of this problem right now? Um, we're people that we love now answers. We love the Internet because of its speed. We've got a question. Uh, in today's world, we don't have to wait for answers. We whip out our smartphones, and within seconds we have answers to all our pressing questions. Um, this, this week I was, um, again, a bit flustered because the weather was nice. And guess what? The, the procrastinators of seed buyers wanted their seed, and they wanted it now. It's like, well, listen, you know, you could have got it last week, you know, but anyway, it had to be now. We like fast food, too. Psalm 102.2 says, Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. I want it now. But he had both two days. Let's read verse 7-16. Then, then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into, Jerusalem, into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of, out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death, and they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now this is the dialogue between his disciples and him about the uh, incident. And after two days, 
the, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, okay, let's go, let's go to Judea now. This was Jesus' idea of now, two days later. It seems like the disciples were a bit disappointed. Perhaps there was a bit of a disagreement between the disciples and Jesus, just how much this elderly man, Lazarus, needed help. I suppose he was elderly. I'm taking the liberty to guess that. Maybe he wasn't real elderly. I'm not sure. But um, it seems like maybe there wasn't as much love between Lazarus and the disciples as there was between Jesus and Lazarus. They're like, don't you know? You go to Judea. You're liable to get stoned. They've been trying to do this. What's, What's wrong with you? Just think about this, Jesus. There's no point in risking your life for this old man, Lazarus. Stay put. Jesus has a very curious answer. He says, hey, are there not 12 hours in a day? It's just like the answer makes no sense with what the uh, disciples had just got done saying. So what's Jesus saying here in in his rebuttal to the disciples? I think what he's saying, and um, I would be interested if you uh, agree with this or if you have a different take on this, but I think what he's saying is that there's 12 hours in a day. In other words, a day has 12 hours. No matter how much you wish it were differently, no matter how much you wish there was 14 or there was 10, I'm talking a day as in daylight, um, it's it's not going to change. There's 12 hours there. If you put that in the context of what the disciples just said, what Jesus was in essence saying is, I don't care if the Jews want to stone me or if they don't. They're only going to get to stone me if my time is done. When the Father decides that my day is done, I'll die. Be that stoning or whatever. But in the meantime, I have some work that needs to be done, and I intend to do that. He says, that's part of walking in the light. If I deviate from that, All of a sudden, I'm in the darkness. This is a theme of Jesus, especially in the book of John. Um, In chapter 9, whenever we talked about the blind man, he had something similar to say. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Again, speaking of there's a time to do things, and then there's a time when it cannot be done anymore. In Luke 13, some of the Pharisees had something similar to say to Jesus. They said, hey, you know Herod wants to kill you? You know that? And Jesus said, hey, I don't care what Herod wants to do. You go tell that fox that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast out devils and I will do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will be perfected. So in essence, what Jesus was telling the disciples is, don't worry about it. It, It's okay. Men of faith have always done the right thing, no matter what. Daniel did it. The three Hebrew boys did it. Paul did it. The Israelites, whenever they were in tune with God, did it. And they survived. And even if they didn't survive, it was like the the Hebrew boys said, either way, it's okay with us. There's 12 hours. When our time's up, we'll go. All right, let's uh, let's look at verses... um, um, Let's look at the, um, the conversation here about uh, Lazarus, Jesus telling the, the disciples that Lazarus is sleeping and whatnot. Um, so he tells the disciples, you know, Lazarus is sleeping. And the di- disciples said, well, that's great. Let's just stay then. Let's let him sleep. He'll get better. That's what we want. You're, you're safer here and he'll get better by his sleep. 
Well, Jesus, of course, kind of explains to them. It says plainly, he says, Lazarus is dead. But he says, I'm, I'm actually glad that everything is the way it is because he says, you need to believe. Now, hold on a second. These were the disciples. These were believers, right? And he says, but no, you need to believe. Consider John 6:68 6, and 69, where Simon Peter answered Jesus, and he said, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here Peter speaks for the disciples and says, Look, we, we got it. We believe. You're, you're the Christ. You're, you're who, we, we know who you are, and we believe. But did they really believe? Did they really they believed he was Christ, but they were very limited in what they understood Christ was able to do. Extremely limited. And I just really like Thomas's remark in verse 16. Well, let's just go with him. Let's just go die with him. I can't decide if that was solidarity or if that was sarcasm. I'm not sure that we'll ever know. But whatever it was, Thomas's probably spoke for the group. He says, um, let's go with him. It was somewhat obvious that Thomas did not get the 12-hour-in-a-day lesson very well. All right, so let's read verses 17 to 19. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and, and Mary to comfort them, concerning their brother. Now this is of, of utmost importance that um, Lazarus was in the grave or was dead four days. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that Lazarus was dead. And as a matter of fact, uh, as strange as this may sound, I've got, I read several sources that came off of this and it sounds extremely strange, but I'll share it with you. Supposedly, I guess the Jews of this day believe that when a person died, the spirit of that person hung around for three days, cut off in the corner somewhere. You know, and it, you know, maybe there was a chance that the spirit could re-enter this person, and it wouldn't be so bad after all. Really strange thing. And I, I suppose that's, that's extra biblical, but that is what historians would say. But if four days it went by and that person was still dead, there was no doubt this person was dead. And that's probably the reason it's stressed several times in this passage that Lazarus was dead for four days. There were several other times whenever Jesus had actually raised the person from the dead. Jairus' daughter uh, was one of those. And at that point in time, the only person that was there was the parents of Peter, James, and John at, at that particular bedside. And she had just died. So you know what? It wasn't three days. It might have just happened anyway. Was it really a miracle? That could have been perhaps some of the some of the conversation with the Jews. And also the widow of Nain had her son raised to life on the way to the grave as well. But it seems like um, they were somewhat, um, somewhat uh, unknown events, perhaps, to the general public. Also curious that there's mention made of how close Bethany was to Jerusalem, about a mile and a half away. And um, it almost seems like the Jews came out to this house out of duty. Well, it's not that far. Let's go out and let's cry with these people for a while. Let's show them their sympathy. You know, if it was too far away, we wouldn't do that. But being as it's close, we'll, we'll go out and, and we'll, um, we'll console these people. 
All right, so let's start in here at verse 21 now. And uh, let's read for a bit. Now let's back up to verse, um, verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now that's interesting. Martha comes out to Jesus right away and says, You know, Jesus, if, you, if you'd have just been here just a little bit sooner, um, it wouldn't have went the way it did. Notice how Martha believed that Jesus had to be at a certain place at a certain time and do things a certain way. But you know, now that that was passed, all hope was gone. But it seems like she holds out just a little bit of hope. She says, but, but I know, but I know that, you know, good things could still happen. She doesn't really say what that is, but she says, um, you know, uh, I know now that whatever you ask, God, God will give it to you. And then whenever, bro- or whenever Jesus says, thy brother shall rise again, she goes, well, yeah, I know, in the last day he will. I, I understand that, Jesus. You know, it seems like she just didn't want to go as far as to think, oh, well, maybe, maybe, um, maybe he will rise again in a very literal way. And then Jesus gives one of the greatest I am's in the Bible. There's different ones he gave. I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, what you don't understand is you don't have to wait to the last day because I am the resurrection and the life. It's right here. It's right in front of your eyes. It seems like Martha had somewhat of a resignation to the circumstances and could not grasp the possibilities of what could happen to her and her family. It seems like she was very similar to Peter. Yes, she says in verse 27, I believe you are Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. I believe that, but Jesus, I really don't know if I believe that you're the resurrection and the life. I'm not sure that I'm making that connection. Well, let's go to Mary's interchange here, verse 28 to 33. And when she had said so, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly, came unto him. While Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. And when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, thou hast been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which were with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. So Mary's interchange was somewhat similar to Martha's. Right away the comment is, if you'd have just been here, if you'd have just been here, Jesus, this whole saga wouldn't have taken place. He wouldn't have died. But you know, you weren't. The implication is you weren't so... It is what it is. 
Not much conversation here between Mary and Jesus, but we do have a great deal of emotion. It seems that uh, the weeping of um, the Jews and Mary here, it seemed like it really troubled Jesus. It says he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. I think the, the, the unbelief and the lack of faith on, on the part of these people just really got to Jesus at this point. At least it would seem that way. It really moved him. You know, everybody was saying, Jesus, if you'd have been here, things would have been different. Never knowing that something much greater was about to take place. Verse 34. So Jesus has grown in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. If there's one thing that was no doubt in anybody's mind that day was that Jesus loved Lazarus. It had been stated earlier, but as the, as the events unfolded here on this day, even the unbelieving Jews looked at Jesus and said, yeah, Jesus loved this man. There's no doubt about it. One of two times that we have that Jesus actually wept. All right, so let's, um, let's move on here. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. So let's look at um, verse 39 for just a bit. Jesus has one command for these people. He says, Take away the stone. Now, Jesus could have taken away that stone himself. He could have performed a miracle to take away the stone. He could have done that. But instead, he asked somebody else to remove the stone. And again, Martha's shallow faith kind of surfaces. You know, you, you would think that Martha would start to put this together. And she'd think, well, you know, maybe. Maybe there's hope yet. But no, she says, it's not a good idea. It's not going to smell very good. You don't want to do that. Please let that stone there. When she had just said earlier, I know if you ask anything of God, he'll give it to you. You know, still she's not making that connection that perhaps, perhaps, there is yet hope. Verse 40, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot, with grave clothes. And his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. It's interesting that Jesus' response to Martha in verse 40 was not, move that stone so I can raise Lazarus. Get rid of the stone so you can see God's glory. He was after God's glory. 
And the real intention of Jesus, um, the events that took place here, and what Jesus wanted to do comes out in his prayer. He says, I want these people that are here to believe. And then the story climaxes with with the loud voice and Lazarus immediately coming out of the grave. And Jesus commands to loose him and let him go. And what happens in verse 45 and 46? Then many of the Jews which, were, which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So what was the glory of God? The glory of God was many believed. But as always, there was always those some that headed off to the Pharisees. Some of those that had such stony hearts, they absolutely could not and would not believe, even though they saw this fabulous miracle taking place right before their eyes. So what do we learn from this? Nice story, right? What can we learn? Well, let's consider a few things. Pretty obvious, but I think this is some lessons we can get from this. So number one, a relationship with Jesus will not exclude you from very difficult times. In fact, it seems like the possibilities are there that they will actually be increased. Hey, these were people that Jesus loved. This man was sick. Jesus had healed a lot of sick people. Yet it seemed like something worse happened. Lazarus still got sick. In fact, Lazarus died. It seems like um, we tend to think in terms of if we love Jesus and Jesus loves us, there should be a favor, you know, somewhat of a, we should, we should have special favors. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't have hard times. kind of harks back to the Sunday school lesson a little bit. But the question that we want to ask is, why do I deserve this? Why do I deserve anything? Why, why should I not suffer? This is part of it. Number two, our service to the Lord, this is very closely related to number one, but our service to the Lord doesn't mean that the Lord is obligated in any way to give us any special favors. Again, um, you know, our Sunday school lesson, um, it seems like the people that worked all day should have got at least two pennies, right? But no, they didn't. I remember um, very vividly um, when I was a boy, there was a kind of a high roller uh, registered cattle breeder in our um, uh, vicinity there. Had a, had a cow that was nigh into death one day. Very, very high dollar cow. And almost simultaneously there was a, well, actually it wasn't simultaneously. There was another farmer that had a cow that was sick too. It was, the difference was it was a low dollar cow. But the guy with the low dollar cow called the vet first. The guy with the, with, the, with the higher dollar cow called second. So the vet went and visited the, the low dollar cow first because that was the order of the call. When he got to the second place, the farmer was irate. You know this cow was worth more than that one over there. Why didn't you come to my, my place first? You know, that's the way we think. You know, you, you, we deserve this. You know, because you know, we have the high dollar cow or we're serving Jesus better. Or Jesus loves us more or whatever. That's not true. Jesus does not owe us any favors. And I think this story brings it out. So we heard he was sick and he, and he abode two more days. Don't expect great favors of God. When you get them, be thankful. But don't expect it. Number three, a person that's sold out to God does not need to fear an untimely death and be paranoid 
about God's call to him. He can trust his life to God even in the face in the face of setting toward Judea. Now we're not talking about recklessness here at all. Uh, Jesus roundly condemned that whenever the devil asked him to throw himself off the pinnacle because God would take care of him. Jesus said, you don't tempt. You don't tempt um, God like that. But what Jesus is teaching here is if God's leading you in a certain direction and it seems like it's not a good idea, if that's the way he's leading you, you must go. That is where your 12 hours lay. Anytime you deviate from that, you actually run the risk of walking in darkness. Read Hebrews 11 sometime and ponder about the last 10 verses. It says there that the people of faith, some of them stopped lion's mouths and they, they did all these wonderful things. But then it says others didn't count their life as anything and gave it. They were both people of faith. You know, we have this trite thing we hear sometimes. You hear it actually fairly often. You know, when it's your time, it's your time. And it sounds a little bit, uh, I don't know, fatalistic. But there's a lot of truth to that. When it is your time, it's your time. Not one minute before, not one minute after. And if you're a child of God, he'll decide that time. Number four, follow God even if you don't like where he's calling. If that's the light, go with it. To do otherwise, we'll stumble. Jonah tried running the other way, and it didn't work out. It was really dark where he ended up, actually. Abraham, on the other hand, he went out not knowing where he was going. Things turned out pretty well for Abraham. Number five, never second-guess the ability of Jesus to bring new life to a most unlikely subject. Actually, this man was dead four days. There's no doubt his spirit was gone, done gone. Jesus will work in his own good time, in his own good way, despite what we think on the subject. After all, he is the resurrection and the life, is he not? To take this one step further, Jesus can do unspeakable things in your life too. Do you think there's any possibilities in your life that Jesus would like to work with that you're saying, I don't think there's any hope. I don't think there's any way that could work. Moses was like that. He was quite content to be a shepherd in that wilderness. He was, he was happy to be there. And when God came and said, Moses, i got another job for you. He's like, I, I don't want any parts of that. No parts of it at all. I can't talk, Jesus. Or, God, I can't talk. Uh, you find someone else. And um, we know that story. But we wouldn't know a thing about Moses if he'd have stayed in that wilderness leading those sheep. And i got to say, I concur with Moses. Eighty years old, I'm going to stick with the sheep too. I don't know that I'm real interested in leading a bunch of rabble-rousers out, uh, out of Egypt. But that's where God wanted Moses. Where does God want you? What can God do with you in your, in your life if you'll commit it to him? All right, number six. In order for God to do great things in your life, you have to get rid of the stones. Let's face it, this miracle we talked about today was a great miracle. And you know the thing we tend to forget is we serve the very same Jesus. If you want to see Jesus work wonderfully in your life, you have to roll away those stones of doubt and apprehension and take a risk on a very bad smell. I think many times our self-sufficiency gets in our way of God showing himself strong in our lives. 
Luke 8.13 talks of the stony soil that, um, you know, it flourishes, the faith flourishes, but when the hard times hit, it goes away. You have to get rid of those stones. It's interesting to me that Jesus did not promise a thing when he said, take away that stone. He didn't say, get rid of the stone so I can raise Lazarus. He said, just get rid of the stone. Roll away the stone. And immediately the question was, well, it's going to stink. You can't take that risk. You, you, you can't do that. And I think that's where we find ourselves so often. It's like, Jesus, we'll take away the stone, but you've got to promise me first that it won't stink and that a good thing's going to happen. You, you, can't, you can't do that. I'm not bungee jumping without something down there. And I, th and I think that's a real problem with, our, with us sometimes. It shows our lack of faith. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to admit I am number one. I'm leading a pack on that. I need my faith uh, deepened in that respect. So, get rid of those stones. Before we go to the next point, i got a little illustration for you. Just a question. If a fire broke out in the back of that church, a bad one, and it's getting out of hand really quick, can you see these things? Which fire extinguisher do you want to work with? The big one. Big one. All right. We've got to vote for the big one. Everybody going with Jeff? Dennis? That's one of the big ones full. Okay, it's full and it's charged. Oh, okay. Go. Yeah, I feel the same. Everybody else good with that? What's the big one? Well, Everybody's a little skeptical. They, they, they sense a little monkey in the woods out here, don't they? Actually, the truth be told, the fire breaks out. I want this baby right here. I'll tell you why. So I have a I have a little interest in fire extinguishers because about the second year we lived here, we had a panel that caught fire in our barn. And I didn't have a fire extinguisher. And I did something you should never do. Never do what I did. I went with water after that thing. Fortunately for me, the Lord spared my life and I wasn't electrocuted. The fire was, you know, brought under control. Nothing was too serious. But after that point in time, I decided it would be a really good idea to have some fire extinguishers around. So it's been, it's been somewhat of an interest to me. Fire extinguishers. You know, I kind of had a bout with this thing. So I went and I purchased four of these things. Actually, I didn't. Actually, a friend gave them to me. He, he heard of my dilemma and he gave them to me, actually. And uh, I had them placed around strategically on the farm. And one time I did have a fire in the skid loader. And, uh, and that actually did do the job, but it was it, it, took, it took that extinguisher plus one more to, to get the fire out, if I remember right. Anyway, so I'm at a farm show this past winter. And I saw this guy had this, these fire extinguishers uh, there. So I'm interested, so I stopped to chat with them. You know, what, what's up with your fire extinguisher? They, they look like, you know, whatever, you know, real things. Well, he, he took the opportunity. Now, it could be I got stunk with wily salesmanship. I'm not quite sure. We haven't had the fire yet. But if what he showed me is true, I am more than happy to have this guy. So here's the difference. This thing here is full of power, all right? And you've got to shoot at the base. That's, all, that's the only place you want to go. Go to the base. You know, try to, it's a retardant is what it is. This guy here is a vapor, all right? 
and it's a special vapor that is attracted to fire. So if the fire's over there, and I'm just in a big hurry, I don't know where the, the fire really is, is originating, I pull the pin and I just start shooting. Because it'll just whoof, right on the fire. Just, it, it, it goes after fire, okay? It, it's attracted to fire. And he showed me, he illustrated to me there, where he, he threw lighter fluid in a, in, a, uh, in a pan there, threw a match in it, the fire's going like this. He took a cup of this stuff and just went like that. The liquid never even touched the fire. The fire was just gone, done, out. And he told me a few other stories and showed me a video, and I was, I was sold. I was sold. I, I want this baby right here. That's what I want. And as a matter of fact, these are equal. As far as, as um, ability to put out the same size fire right here, they're equal. So don't let the size kid you. This is the one I want right here. All right, so what's the lesson? The lesson is we have to seek a quality faith with Jesus. In Luke 17, Jesus is telling the disciples how um, that they have to forgive their brothers. As many times, he comes back seven times and the dad says, I've, I've, I've done the wrong thing, please forgive me. Um, they, they, they have to forgive that person. And, and the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's all it takes. You don't need lots of faith. You need quality faith. That's what you need. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing about um, lots of faith. I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of hearing about faith that... You know, I got faith. I'm a person of faith. And, and you know, I'm tired of hearing about, um, um, you know, mega churches and, and all this wonderful thing that's happening. I'm tired of that. I'm looking in my life for quality faith, and I hope you are too. So what's that mean? I believe it means we have to refine our faith. In Second Peter 1, it talks about adding to our faith. Peter doesn't say, make your faith bigger. He says, take the faith you got and hone it. Add to it. What Peter and Martha here had were great confessions. Oh, we believe you're the Christ. We believe you're the Son of God, Jesus. You know, folks, we have great confessions too. We, we ascribe to the Schleitheim and the Dortrick and the Garden City confessions of faith. We have these great confessions. What does it mean? It's literally words on a paper, all right? We need quality faith. Jesus is not looking for great confessions or quantity, lots of faith. He's looking for quality Quality faith does not does things that does not make sense. It will go to Judea in the face of stones, and it will roll away stones when it stinks. Quality faith follows through when everybody else is smirking. The Jews were saying, hey, he raised people and he did all these other things. He could have done this for this person too, and they're smirking. Quality faith follows through. Quality faith is okay with feeling vulnerable. If Jesus asks something of you, quality faith will roll away stones and say, there you go, Lord, stones are gone. Quality faith is what enables God to display his power and to convince the unbeliever. So the question is, friends, are you experiencing quality faith? Are you experiencing the resurrection and the life? Are you alive? 
You know, Jesus had a sobering question whenever um, he was having a conversation with his disciples one day. And he asked those questions. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? And I think what Jesus was saying is, do you believe me enough to believe that I am the resurrection and life? Do you believe me enough to do what I ask you to do? Do you believe that I can raise people from the dead? Do you believe that I can work through your life to do things beyond what you can ask or think? Do you have that quality of faith? Or are you all about smoke and mirrors? Big, loud confessions and wonderful worship services and oh, we got so encouraged and so on and so on. But man, we're just lacking anything when I read over this, friends, I have to admit that I was challenged. I know I need more quality faith. That's where I'm at. I want more quality faith. I don't know where you're at, but I hope. I don't think we can ever get to the point where we don't need more of that. I really believe that. So I guess my challenge for you today is, today we saw Christ's power. We saw God's glory displayed. And we saw people of faltering faith. So where do you fit into this? We are somewhat uh, faltering. That, that's probably just going to be the nature of us. But folks, we can attain some quality faith. But it's going to take some seeming vulnerableness. We're going to have to let ourselves look somewhat stupid, if you will, to actually experience that. So I want to just leave that with you um, like Peter says, add to your faith. Hone that faith. It's well worth it, and that's the only way we will experience the resurrection and the life.